Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Friday, October the 14th. This is episode 3182 of the Survival Podcast. It is time for an expert council Q&A show. This is where... Experts from my expert panel answer your questions that you send to me. You send those to me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC expert in the subject line. In case the spam monster consumes it, I will be able to rectify it and bring it back out and get it to the correct expert. <coughs> the way to do this, ask your question in a single sentence. Single question, right? Single sentence question. My question is for expert council member blah, blah, blah. Tim Cook, Jeff Lawton, whoever. My question is, one sentence question. Return, return, all the details you want. Lots of details are fine. Just give us the question first, then everybody's clear on what's going on. You'll be more likely to get an answer. Uh, got a bunch of great stuff for you today. Leading off, Ron Paul with the Liberty Highlights and his whole team over there. Dr. Paul will talk about how Pfizer executives now admit the vaccine mandates and passport system was based on lies and nothing more. Pure, absolute, 100% lies. I'm beginning to wonder, is there anything that we were not right about? All the stuff we were banned for, shut down for, uh, accused of killing grandma for, all of it. Is there anything we got wrong? I don't think there is. Dan McAdams will uh, extend that a little bit. He'll also talk about how there was a red line crossed in Russia, uh, the Crimea Bridge explosion. And everybody's making uh, a lot to do with uh, Russia's reprisal attacks over this. But no one wants to talk about what it's a reprisal for. Sometimes when a nation draws a red line and you cross it, they actually mean it. Jeff Lawton, I'm sorry, hold on. Uh, Chris Rossini will talk about one of the many reasons why globalism is a pipe dream. Why it's never going to work and it's never really going to happen. There will always be globalists, but there ain't necessarily going to be globalism. Jeff Lawton... I actually had two questions in the in the pipeline for him that he had already done, but I heard I heard the one I have from from him today on YouTube, and I stripped out the audio and I said I want to play this uh, today. You know, there's a prime directive in permaculture: the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for that of ourselves and of our children. And someone taking his online permaculture course right now said, "Well, how far does that go? You know, if I'm not off grid, am I really taking responsibility for myself and that of my children?" And it was a very well-asked question, very well-asked question, and a very well-answered question. And I'll have some add-on thoughts about that when we get to it. Uh, then someone asked Tim Toolman Cook about a good headlamp. I have links for the recommendations he has there for you. Nick Ferguson has a, a question on choosing the right fr uh, fruit trees for your climatic zone. You know, um, I did. I talked about scale of permanence yesterday and how like you can't change your climate, so you better adapt to it. Nick's going to talk about that. Matthew Sersley, some of y'all know him from being here to the workshop and what have you. Kind of a trial run to see if we can get enough questions for him. Matthew is a tax attorney. He's been on the air with us before. Uh, he has a, a segment for you on proper estate planning in regards to your will. This is something that I and Dorothy realize we need to redo ourselves because so many things have changed. He'll talk about examples. I'll give you an example for uh, some things that have changed for us since we did our will last time. John Pugliano will talk about what to do about a potential real estate crash if you're holding a house and you're like, I should have sold it. I don't necessarily agree with John's forecast for the real estate market. I'm much more doom and gloom than him. But it doesn't mean I disagree with his recommendation. That's going to be kind of cool. And then I have thoughts on a quote of the day. quote of the day for you is from Thomas Mann, who was a German author. And he wrote, War is only a cowardly escape from the problems of peace. And when I saw that quote, I'm like, I definitely want to talk about this on air. And then Michael Saylor tweeted something. Yes, Michael Saylor from MicroStrategy, a fame as a, as a Bitcoiner now, said something about war that was so dramatically close. It was like, I'm glad I waited so that I could put the two of them together. What did Michael Saylor say? You'll have to wait until my segment to hear from it. With that, let's dump on into it. But I do want to make an announcement right now for you guys. And this may have already been filled by the time you hear this, but... Dorothy and I need one more person 
as a member of our, our kitchen staff for the fall workshop. So this is how this work. it pay, works. It pays, it's a paid position. I'll tell you how much it pays if you, uh, if you get in touch with me about it. The key is you'll get to be here for the fall workshop, and you'll be paid to be here. However, your staff, and that is kitchen staff and general help. So it's things like making sure garbage is taken care of. It's things like helping the kitchen staff get stuff ready, taking stuff out, bringing stuff back in, keeping everything on schedule. Basically, you'll be reporting Dorothy. And again, it is a paid position. What this means is you won't be sitting through classes. It's not one of these things like, oh, I want to see this class and I want to see that class. It's, it's not that. You do get to be here for the after-hours stuff and all the camaraderie and things like that. So we need somebody for that role. We always try to make it fair with each member of the staff. If there's a, a presentation that they specifically want to see, we, we can work it out to where they can be free for one, maybe two, depending on what they are. Uh, there is some downtime. It's a lot of fun. The staff has a lot of fun together. They usually kill a few uh, shots here and there along the way and enjoy themselves. But it's work, and I just want to be clear about that. I've had some people offer that have done it before. I kind of want to give this to a new person. And I had like one person say, oh, I, can't, I can't be there till late Thursday night, and I, I need somebody Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and if you're still host Sunday, we kind of ask you help with a little bit of pickup before you go. Uh, so I need somebody here all three days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, of the workshop, and that's from mon you know, morning on Thursday through Saturday evening, mandatory. Again, it's a paid position. You get to be here. There are no tickets left, so it is as a way to be part of the event. And uh, for some people, it turns into something that they keep doing. We had a few people with just couldn't do it this year. Uh, honestly, we haven't asked for anybody out of the audience to do this in years. So it's not an opportunity that comes up very often. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and drop into the Ron Paul Liberty highlights. Oh, if you want to do that, if you're like, yeah, I want to do that, email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, TSPC workshop help in the subject line, and I'll tell you all about it and put you in touch with Dorothy. Uh, send your cell number with that so Dorothy can give you a call or a text. All right, now. In the Ron Paul Liberty highlights, Pfizer's executives admit the vaccine mandates and passport were based on lies, red line crossed in Russia, and why globalism is a pipe dream. But we'll start with the one story by Zero Hedge about Pfizer. Yeah. I mean, we, we've known about Pfizer and an executive at a hearing admitted that they never tested anything. They did not know, and they all know they did not know, yet they went out all out there and lied. I consider that fraud, uh, dangerous, and uh, illegal. They should be punished for it. It, uh, it isn't like uh, a, um, a unintended mistake. You know, people make mistakes all the time. They still might be liable and all this. But this, this was very deliberate. And we owe thanks to a Dutch member of the European Parliament, Rob Roos, who probably sound like a Dutch Rand Paul, because he actually asked a, a good question. So this was a meeting of the European Parliament. Pfizer exec admits under oath, we never tested COVID vaccine against transmission. And so let's do the next one. This is Rob Roos himself, the member of European Parliament. He says, in a COVID hearing, Pfizer director admits vaccine was never tested on preventing transmission. And then he says, get vaccinated for others was always a lie. The only purpose of the COVID vaccine, forcing people to get vaccinated. Uh, and there is, if you go to that, you can see the video of it. And let's go to the next one now. This is the exact question that he asked during this session. He said, was the Pfizer COVID vaccine tested on stopping the transmission of the virus before it entered the market? Did we know about stopping immunization before it entered the market? And she said, no. You know, we had to really move at the speed of science to know what is taking place in the market. Uh, it, and it's a wild admission. If this is the case, and it indeed appears to be the case, the whole rationale for everything they did, the vaccine mandates, the vaccine passports, the brutal discrimination against people who did not want to take that particular medicine, That was all completely unjustified. It was all based on a lie, if this is the case. Joe Biden, as you said before the show, if you take these shots, you won't get COVID. And then he took them and got COVID twice, yeah. right? Yeah, you make a good point that, you know, you're only allowed to take one side, you know, whether it's the monster Saddam, the monster Gaddafi. The American people are always conditioned to take a side, take a side, <laughs> but take the American side. 
But, you know, for us, we always take a side, but we always actually take the real American side, which is we should not be involved. We shouldn't have been involved in the coup. We shouldn't have been involved in the Orange Revolution 10 years prior to the coup. We shouldn't have been involved in arming Ukraine. It had nothing to do with us. Putin said, this is one of our red lines. Do not hit the bridge. And as you point out, the whole, the whole history of this conflict has been the Biden administration pushing red lines. How much equipment can we put in there? How much money can we spend buying military equipment for Ukraine? And each time they cross a red line, they push it even further. And I think this is primarily Blinken and Sullivan, the national security advisor and the secretary of state. So at this point, the bluff was called and Putin did respond to the attack on the bridge. But I would say for sure that Ukraine achieved a kind of psychological victory by hitting the bridge, because that is a symbol of, of Crimea returning to Russia. And so hitting that, I think, is a, was a real uh, psychological uh, victory for them. Over 100 strikes, probably about 150 strikes. Um, so far, 11 confirmed deaths from the strikes. But apparently the targets have been uh, military, energy, and communication targets throughout Ukraine. Um, from what I've read so far, they're not permanently damaged, but significantly offline. I think they hit, because the SBU, which is Ukraine's intelligence service, was identified as being behind the attack on the bridge, their headquarters got hit in Kiev, so that's a response. And just one last thing is what President Putin said as they had completed this first round of, uh, of response. If attempts to carry out terrorist attacks continue, Russia's response will be severe and at the level of the threats facing it. Nobody should be in any doubt. I think it's something that should be taken seriously. <laughs> when you hear about the deep state or globalists, always remember that it's not a cohesive unit. This is not even though it seems that way sometimes, this is not one big team that is against us. They're all against us, but they're not all together, you know, because this you have to think about the nature of power and, and the authoritarian mentality. People that desire power, that lust after power, they want it themselves. They want to be the ones that gives the orders. They want to wield it. They don't want to take it from someone else, take orders from someone else. So that's why this whole, you know, pipe dream of global government, great reset, uh, it's a pipe dream because it ignores the fact that people who reach for power, they want it for themselves. So even if theoretically, you know, they set up some global government, uh, all the authoritarians will be at each other's throat right away. It'll never last because their socialism is always going to be better than the other guy's socialism. Uh, you can look at the Soviet Union, what a disaster that was. You weren't even safe if you were a part of the Communist Party. You know, so that's how power is. So that's the good thing. Uh, the bad thing is we live in a world that's, you have all these power centers, they're like gangs, and we live in a world of gang warfare. That, you know, they will work together when their goals align with one another. COVID was a great example. A lot of power centers, you know, took advantage of that, not that they were all on the same page, but they all took advantage of it. Their goals aligned, but the moment that goals do not align, then they'll be at each other's throat. Don't think of it, even though it feels that way, that there's this one giant team that is doing all these things, uh, you know, to take away our liberties. It's not a giant team. They're not a cohesive unit. They are trying to take our liberties for themselves, for their own benefit. So I'll, he, I'll hit each one of those segments briefly. I want to start out with the most important one. And I, I knew Dr. Paul had spoken on this, and Dan as well, and I was very glad that it was the segment they chose for this week's uh, Liberty Highlights. Uh, what the Pfizer executive admitted is grounds for a lot of people to be in prison for a very long time. Now, it's not going to happen, but it is. And what it does is the entire argument that it's not about just you. It's not your body, your choice. You need to get the vaccine to protect other people. We knew it was a lie. 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 For the love of God, anybody with an IQ higher than you know two digits, anybody with a hundred or up, at least should have known it was a lie. But they were brainwashed. They were made stupid, as in Bonhoeffer's theory of stupidity. Okay, which if you've never looked it up, you need to look that up today. Bonhoeffer's theory of stupidity. It explains everything you see around you. But now we have proof that not only did they, they know they had not tested, they knew they knew. 
And they pretty much admitted that the whole thing was just about making everybody get vaccinated. It was never about preventing transmission and spread. And they knew it, and they knew it, and they knew it. And I can't help but think about the fact that there was a ruling recently, just happened this week against Alex Jones, says he has to pay almost a billion dollars to people from Sandy Hook for the way he reported the Sandy Hook uh, shooting. I think Jones has admitted that he made mistakes and did things that were wrong in that, and he's admitted some guilt. And maybe he should owe something. I don't know. I didn't really follow the case that course. But not a billion dollars. But this is what I want to know. Then how much money should Pfizer and all the freaking uh, media mouthpieces and the little troll Anthony Fauci and all these other ass clowns and Deborah Brick, how much money should they owe for their lies that totally destroyed the lives of millions upon millions upon millions of people? that took military officers and enlisted ranks who had been in 16, 17 years, a couple years from retirement, and destroyed the retirements. How much should they owe? I think they should owe all that they have, and in return for all that they have, they get an orange jumpsuit and a small concrete room for the rest of their life. That's what I think they should get. You know what's going to happen? Absolutely. 100%. Nothing. I, I want you to accept this right now. Not because it's right, but because it is. No one is going to pay for what they've done. Fauci will not pay. His ilk will not pay. The Chinese that made the freaking virus in a lab will not pay. No one will pay. We've paid. We're the only people that are going to pay the victims. And it, it, the screwed up society we live in, we continue to pay for it. We are on the precipice of war. And I'll tell you, it's because this, if without COVID, we wouldn't be on the precipice of war right now. I don't get into how, but we wouldn't be. As far as the red line in Russia, I'll just put it this way. If somebody blew up one of our bridges and we hit some of their cities with some cruise missiles, everybody would be okay with it. Plain and simple. Blew up one of our bridges with civilians on it, inside our own sovereign territory, and we hit some. We, we struck back with cruise missiles, it would be expected and everybody would cheer it on, including the leftist media. As far as globalism being a pipe dream, I have really one way of explaining that, because markets are going to market. That's why. Anyway, good stuff from all three of that team. Now, I want you to hear this. This is about Permaculture's Prime Directive. This is from one of Jeff's students in his, his newest PDC. And the, the minute I heard this, I'm like, I have got to play this on air. Hi, Jeff Lawton here for the first Q&A for this online PDC. And um, got some great questions, and this is going to be good fun. So, first question, and it comes from uh, Jeff Powell. The prime directive states, the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children. How fully should we embrace this responsibility? For example, if I'm not off-grid, if I'm not being responsible for my power needs. If I shop at a supermarket, I'm not being responsible for my own food. Surely our connection to society and its infrastructure leaves us less than fully responsible. No matter how hard we try, it seems to imply almost a hermit's existence. And so I know I'm misinterpreting it. I'm just getting stuck on the extent of this responsibility. To be honest, I'd like to be responsible for as much as possible in my existence from water, food, power, etc. I'm just trying to understand how far permaculture ethics go in the way of responsibility. To fully embrace the prime directive seems radical, if not next to impossible. How should I interpret this? Well, this, this is your point in time to know what you need to aim at. So it's all about intention. None of us are going to achieve perfection in the near future, but we can intend to move in that direction. Once you know what you need to aim at, we can start the journey. It's not that you can jump to the destination immediately, because <laughs> we're a long way off track, and that's very obvious, and will become more obvious as you go through the course. So we need to be realists, not idealists. And at this point in time, we need to encourage other people to want to support this move 
in this direction to something that is sustainable and can be perpetuated indefinitely in a world that can remain and extend its abundance. So don't stress too much. Make sure that you have the best intentions to go in the direction that we know is possible. And don't punish yourself too much if you have to accept some compromises along the way, but always have that destination in sight that you that's where you'd like to go that's where you'd like all of us to encourage each other to go work together towards that final goal and uh we'll get there it's all about us starting to move with the right intention we're not going to get there straight away but if we all start to move the journey starts to speed up and we get there faster that's what it's about so i agree with everything jeff said and i have some additions um One of my additions is that a lot of the things that we tend to think of as being bad are not necessarily bad. They're bad in their quantity. I, I, I don't necessarily think it's bad to be hooked up to the electrical grid. I think it's an amazing blessing. I think it's, it's lifted millions of people out of poverty and squalor to have easily available energy. The quest now is to make the energy better, more reliable, and cleaner. And there's a lot of ways we can do that. I think that it's always made sense to try to get yourself move toward being off-grid, increase your efficiency, etc. I think that's always made sense because it makes economic sense. And all, a lot of these things that we think of as like being in conflict with economics are not. There's this belief that there's like these zero-point energy machines and stuff that could just make energy out of... You know, if you, if you could build that, you'd be the richest human being that ever existed. You'd make Elon Musk look like a beggar in the middle of the Depression. I mean, really. That stuff doesn't exist. It's all a pipe dream. It's all fantasyable. But I think we will get a long way toward cleaner and more abundant energy over time. And there's a lot of things we can do to reduce the need for energy without damaging humankind as a whole. And one of the things Jeff spoke about very recently on the air was not moving too fast to where you harm people. Remember, there's three ethics in permaculture in addition to this prime directive. Ethic one, care of the earth. Ethic two, care of people. Ethic three, return or reinvestment of surplus to the aim of the first two. So if we have such a desire to care for the earth, that we get rid of all conventional fertilizer before we've restored soil sufficiently to feed people, it doesn't matter which of the three ethics you fail, it matters that you failed one. And since we can't do any of them perfectly, we must find balance between them. And so I think a big part of this whole how far do we take the prime directive ends up really being, but look at him over there. He's worse than me. He says to do this. And I don't think that's where the person asking this came from. But it may be that someone did it to them. I, I want the, the big thing I've always, when I teach permaculture, and I always lead with the prime directive and the ethics. In spite of the fact that Paul Wheaton and I, we are great friends, but we have total disagreement about that. He's like, all it does is cause problems. And I'm thinking it is, the problem is the solution if you explain it right. Um, but what I always say about the Prime Directive when I teach it, the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for ourselves. And when you say that, you mean me, I. The whole point of the Prime Directive is it takes your ability to defer to somebody else's bad And say, you do what you can with what you have now, instead of make excuses. And I think as long as you're doing that, you are fulfilling the prime directive. And remember, the prime directive says, and for that of our children, this is not just an energy usage thing. This is not just a resource usage thing. This is a system of economics as well. Permaculture is a perfect system of economics. That's why, though many of you can't accept it, Bitcoin fits so perfectly with it. If I'm taking responsibility for that of my children then they should not be destitute. Just my thoughts adding on. Let's move on and talk about headlamps. Yep, headlamps with Tim Toolman Cook. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back with another question for the expert council. So let's jump right in. This week's question comes from Matt. He says, I got a question for Tim. What is a good headlamp? I'll always love it. Straight to the point. Details. Headlamp season is upon us. We have a small homestead, so either outside in the evenings or in a small area of the house working on electrical, etc. 
a good headlamp is ideal. I seem to only find rechargeable models where I would prefer something that takes double A so I can use my existing rechargeable and a loop batteries. I would want to keep it under a hundred bucks and have a decent distance slash spread for peripheral view if possible. Product weight is not really of concern. Thanks, Matt in Virginia. Well, first, Matt, thank you for sending this question. <laughs> Headlamps are right up my alley. I could talk about them all day. Always enjoy it. Now, 95% of my experience is with the Coast brand. I came across them about three years ago at a big box store here in Canada, and now I seem to find them everywhere. I've had really good luck with their quality. I don't want this to be a commercial for Coast, but I really do enjoy their stuff. So let's deal with each point that you mentioned. First, you've got a solid budget. A hundred bucks will buy you just about any headlamp on the market except the absolute top of the line. So that's a good start. Now, if weight isn't an issue, you can also go with the bigger, brighter ones because the more powerful ones, of course, by their nature, do tend to be quite a bit heavier. Looking for spread of light, that's not a bad issue either because most have a focus where you either slide or turn and that'll either give you a spot for up close or, or a flood for a big wide berth. Now, the biggest sticking point in what you are looking for, because sometimes it's impossible to have everything we want, but we can have most, is the double A issue. Almost all the major headlamps out there take triple A batteries because they're wanting a small compact form size. I scrolled through Energizer's site as well. I've had some issues or some good luck with theirs as well. And they had all AAA batteries. So that's going to be your big sticking size. Now, the larger ones tend to take the larger lithium ion or there's a few different types, but they tend to have their own semi-proprietary battery size. And then you can take that out and come with the factory supplied sleeve that'll allow three AAA batteries in there. So here's the issue. Now, you've heard me say before the importance of standardizing on things such as batteries, jerry cans, mason jars, whatever. But the downside to standardizing is we can become so standard that we limit our options. I was looking for, I did not want to keep 9-volt batteries on hand at home. So I was limiting myself. I needed some nine volt devices. I spent way too much time looking for things like carbon monoxide detectors, light meters, and sound meters that didn't take nine volt batteries. So one day I just decided, you know what? I need to stop this. And I bought myself a set of nine volt rechargeable batteries. So standardization is great, but don't standardize simply by excluding all the other good options. So what I'm saying here is it probably wouldn't hurt to have a, you know, a four pack, an eight pack, or a dozen AAA Eneloops. I've got mostly double A's, but I do have some AAA Eneloops because I love those batteries and all of my chargers will fit either a AAA or a double A. So it's not like I got to buy another gear. So if you can compromise on the AAA issue, I got two suggestions for you. First is the Coast FL85. That's been my go-to for three years now. The Coast FL70 and the FL80 series are just a solid series. They're not expensive, but they work great. I've got two of them in my blackout drawer right now. They run for just around 45, 50 bucks. They have a really bright 600, 615 lumens, depending on which model you buy. So for your hundred bucks, you could grab two of them because two is one, one is none, and three is a guarantee. Or if you want to spend your entire budget on one, I actually just had a care package sent to me from Coast Flashlights. So I've been testing some out. I just did a review on the XPH34R. It's their top of the line. It's 85 bucks on Amazon right now. I'll send Jack a link for that one and for the previous one. And it is a beast. You can take it out of its holder, use it as a handheld flashlight. It's heavy. It's got a magnet on it. It has the Zithium Ion X battery, I believe it's called, that it comes with it. So you can charge it through USB-C or you can slide it out, put in that sleeve and have three AAA batteries. But at $85, you got, you got enough money left to buy a four pack of Eneloop AAAs for $14.50 on Amazon. I'll throw that link at 
for Jack as well. But that headlamp tops out at 2,075 lumens, can be seen at 700 yards away, and it is just a, a joy to wear. Even though it's heavy, the strap that comes with it is is great. So I hope that helps. Sometimes we just got to open our mind up and realize we can have almost everything we want, but just not everything. So if those recommendations work, I'll make sure Jack has the links in the description for you. And if you want to know what I'm up to, just launch the Patch of the Month Club. Go to patchofthemonth.co, $10 a month, $100 a year, and you get a tactical or a morale patch every single month delivered to your dooryard. Funny, politically incorrect, all kinds of interesting things. It's a way to support the workshop and what I'm up to. And of course, run by the workshop podcast three times, three evenings a week, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, Saturday, Sunday, and Thursdays. So guys, that's it for me this week. As always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. And I do have links to the stuff that Tim recommended in the show notes right next to the bullet point uh, for Tim's stuff. It says, choosing a good headlamp, Tim Toolman Cook, uh, both the headlamp and the Enloop batteries. Uh, next up, I have a question for Nick Ferguson on fruit trees. Hey there, Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty and RarePlantStore.com here with an expert counsel answer on selecting fruit trees for your zone. And this is from Robert. Question for Nick Ferguson. I have a nectarine tree that isn't putting out blossoms or fruit. Why? Details. I live in Zone 5B in New Hampshire. On my property is a nectarine tree that was planted by the previous owners, likely for looks rather than yield. It's the only fruit tree currently on the five-and-a-half-acre property, likely the only fruit tree in a two-mile radius. I would estimate it is between five and ten years old. It has not set out blossoms or attempted to fruit since we moved to the property in August of 2020. What are some things I can do to help it bloom next year? Do I need other fruit trees locally to stimulate production? Thanks, Robert. Um, okay, so most nectarines aren't going to do fantastic in Zone 5B. Some of them will, but most won't. And it's highly likely that the prior owner picked probably an earlier fruiting slash blooming tree or uh, they might have chose one that's not self-fertile. Could be any number of issues. Uh, if it's handling the cold temps and growing, it could be just fine and it only needs a pollinator. If it never blooms or you see the start of blossoms and then you get a good hard freeze every year and then the blossoms kind of fall off, then it's unlikely you'll ever really get fruit from the tree without some significant effort protecting it from frost. That's the short and quick answer. So let's dig into the possibilities a little bit. Let's stay hopeful and say it's fine and it blooms and the blooms survive and develop, but you simply just never get any fruit. How do we address this issue? I know you said it, it doesn't look like it's ever bloomed, but sometimes it could just be a frost came that night and, and they just fell off. could be twofold. The tree is not self-fertile and doesn't have an acceptable pollinator. Or it's fine, but there's no pollinators in your area because everyone spreads poisons on all their landscaping plants and kills all the pollinators. Unlikely, but possible. So what you do in this instance is take careful note of the date you see this tree starting to bud. Blossoms form, fully develop and drop. Take notes on those dates, and better yet, the temps on those days as well. See, what might be happening is it's starting to form buds, but you get a frost, and then they freeze, and then they fall off. So it takes observation. So you take that local, uh, sorry, you take that info, and you take it to your local ag extension office, and you let them know what your situation is, the data that you collected, and they might be able to help you figure out what nectarine pollinator you might be able to add to your landscape to get that tree fruitful. Uh, that is, if you can protect it from the um, from the cold, you might be able to get some fruit from it if it just needs a pollinator. So, if it's surviving the freezes, but the blossoms drop every year after a frost, whether you have observed it or not, then you need a cultivar that blooms later and handles the cold better. I'm guessing this one. Um, so, if this is the case, and it most likely is, you have three options here. Number one, you build a structure around it and protect it from the frost and 
hope it's self-fertile, and that the pollinators can get to it. It'll need a little bit of management and kind of just fiddling with it. Number two, you graft a later blooming or more frost-tolerant cultivar right onto it. You'd have to cut it off and top work it and regraft it and regrow a new cultivar on there. Or number three, you can cut it down and replace it with the later blooming cultivar. Just cut the tree down and stick a new tree in there. Intrepid, Messina, and Stark Honey Glow are some options that will work into Zone 4. Um, other than that, sorry man, but that's pretty much all I can offer you in the way of help. My guess is it's probably getting hit by frost and knocking the undeveloped blossoms off the tree before they even look like a blossom. Like it, It's sometimes really hard to tell, um, especially if it's, if it's a more frost tender and those blossoms have not even turned any kind of color. They're just a little bit of a different shaped shoot, you know, a different shaped bud. So um, if that's the case, then you have to go with frost protection, grafting a new cultivar, or just a new tree. Those are most likely your only real options. Hope you get it figured out. Uh, but for the rest of you awesome people out in the TSP community, I'll hopefully be seeing some of you at the Self-Reliance Festival, the beginning of October, Nicole's Food Force Workshop, the end of October, and of course, at Jack's Fall Workshop, the middle of November. If you want to get in on one of my two, that's probably all I have time for, consulting slots before Jack's Workshop, you better send me an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com. I'm fresh out of time until pretty much Jack's Workshop, because... Uh, I'm pretty much off the grid for the month of October. I'm going to be trying to shoot sharp, pointy sticks through the air into deer and bear and enjoying wood smoke and the sounds of crickets and crows. Hope you all have a great weekend. Do good things. Yeah, that is a really early variety, and you can have blossom bud form. Unless you're really looking for it, you wouldn't even notice that that's what it was. And one good hard freeze... All that stuff crisps up and it just falls off. And I've had it happen here, uh, usually where I can see the blossoms, but I also, around that time of year, I'm, I'm looking at every tree like almost under a magnifying glass. Next up, I have got one now from a potential new uh, member of the council. I like to add people and change things up from time to time, and I've done that over the years. Matthew Sersley, he's been on before. He is a tax attorney and a con tax attorney consultant. Uh, I get a lot of questions that I say, tax attorney and CPA. Well, here's your tax attorney. If you guys have more questions for Matthew after you hear what he has to say today, uh, just email me, as always, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com, TSPC expert in the subject line, and tell me you want Matthew or the tax guy, if you can't remember his name, uh, to answer a question. Give me your question the way we always ask for it. If we get a few questions, we'll, uh, we'll bring them on and uh, see where it goes from there. And with that, let's talk about your will. It's something people don't want to talk about because it's looking at death. And a lot of times we don't want to do that, but, you know, I always talk about the dash between the two years. That dash is you, and the dash itself means someday it runs out. And we need to think about what we leave behind. Your will is not for you. It's for those that are here after you're gone. Hey, TSP listeners, this is Matthew Sersley, the Agorist Tax Advisor, coming here today to talk to you about how proper planning pays major dividends in the future. But today I'm not talking about tax planning. Before I get into that, remember, this is not personal legal advice to any person, and I'm not your lawyer just because I'm talking about this. Now, we're all about getting prepared for life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. But there's something we all know that's going to happen to us in our life, and that's that we're going to die eventually. So part of prepping is getting ready for the end-of-life stuff. That means you need a will, and you need to make sure the beneficiaries on accounts are correct. If you haven't done this or it's in more than five years since you did it, you really should do this or review it now. Now, for about 99% of people, a simple will from LegalZoom is probably fine. Cost you maybe $100, maybe a little bit more. Now, I have spent a lot of time working in personal injury. I've worked on a few dozen cases involving somebody dying. When there's no will, it can cost the family thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars to go through probate. It's also a waste of months or years of time. And if there's any dispute or fight among the heirs, it can get really, really nasty. Things that a will will solve. A few things to think about when you do or redo your will. 
First of all, frankly, think about the last three years. Are the people you wanted to raise your children in 2019 the same people you want to raise your children today? Do they understand what's important to you when raising your kids? If you don't have a will, your kids are probably going to go to someone in your family or your in-laws. Don't you want to say in who gets to raise your kids? Now, if you are not legally, formally married to your current partner, they will be completely screwed if you die without a will. They will have no right to inherit anything from you. In most states, it will instead go to your kids, if any, and then to your parents. This is devastating if you're in a long-term relationship with somebody. If you are separated from your current legal spouse, strongly consider revising your will. Divorces can take years, and if you die before it's final and have no will, your current legal spouse may inherit everything. If there's been any major change, the birth of the child, any divorces, any deaths of anybody who's getting anything, any significant changes in property you own, it's time to redo your will right then and there. One thing you want to be careful of, wills don't control everything. Depending on the state you're in, real estate that's co-owned by other people may in fact be transferred directly to them and not as you want it to be in the will. Talk to a local attorney. Much more commonly, wills usually don't control insurance policies or financial accounts. So if you have a bank account that you opened 20 years ago with your now ex-wife, if she's listed as the beneficiary on it when you die, She's probably going to get it if you die. I doubt that's what you want. I'll be honest. I almost made this mistake myself. My best friend was a beneficiary on an account until about a year ago. And I've been married for 12 years now. Now, I don't do wills, so don't contact me about any of this stuff. But if you have a business and you haven't done any tax planning, please reach out to me and set up a free consultation call with me at agoristaxadvice.com slash the survival podcast. Hope to help you guys out. Thank you. Well, I thought it was a great segment. I'd certainly like more questions from Matthew. I think he had tightened a little bit up on audio quality, but other than that, it was pretty damn good. Um, I, I will give you an example of some things, and this could be in a will or just simply somewhere where it's uh, available to family members. What do you want done when you die? Dorothy and I have talked about this, and neither one of us want a giant funeral. We don't want, to, we don't want our family and our, our survivors spending tens of thousands of dollars on things like caskets and vaults and all that shit. We just want simple cremation, family get-together, people that really cared, meet and, 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 and remember us and hopefully laugh a little bit uh, amid the sorrow and to remember us for, and then go on with their lives. Well, that's all good and well, except that Dorothy has this great big giant family that, that, that may expect otherwise. And I'm like, you need to talk to these people or put it on, like, you need, like, they need to know. Because I'm going to be trying, if, if, if you happen to go first, I'm going to be the one trying to fulfill what you want. And families get really emotional at times like this. So I think there's things beyond just property that need to be thought about in this. Anyway, if you have questions for Matthew, you'd like to hear them again, uh, send, me, send them in to me, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com, and we will get them over to him. Next up, I have a question for John Pugliano on real estate and is it going to crash and what should you do if you own a house now and you have a house that needs work and blah, blah, blah. And again, I'm going to let you listen to this and say that my belief about what's about to happen in real estate and John's are a little bit different, but our conclusions are remarkably similar. Here we go. Hello, TSP. We have a question from Tim. He's asking about real estate and here's what he says. Should I sell my house now before the predicted real estate crash? And is it wise to get a HELOC to make the needed repairs before selling? Okay, a couple things, Tim. First off, all real estate is local, right? That's why they say the three most important words are location, location, location. So I don't know your particular situation. Let me just give you some general guidance. Okay, first off, as far as the predicted real estate crash, well, there's no doubt because of the rise in interest rates that there's going to be a much more cooling off of the real estate market And that should come as no surprise because that's the Federal Reserve's intended purpose. They're trying to create demand destruction to fight inflation. And that's going to hit the hardest, most likely in the areas that were the most overheated to begin with. But as far as overall residential real estate, and again, it's all local, so it depends on where you live. But in terms of just single home ownership, we're definitely seeing prices coming down because they've been artificially too high. But I would make the case that in most areas... We won't see a total real estate crash 
for a couple reasons. And the biggest reason is the overall stability and wealth effect that people have in their current homes. The collapse in housing prices during the 2008 financial crisis, that was a debt liquidity and liquidation crisis where large amounts of homeowners, and we're talking, you know, in excess of maybe 30% of the market, bought homes where they simply couldn't finance the debt. And so if we do go into some type of a real estate crisis now, it won't be similar to back then because right now the financing of mortgages and the overall debt load is actually incredibly very well. In fact, even just from an interest rate standpoint, if you think of all the people that during the pandemic that were out refinancing, many of them getting interest rates, you know, well below 3% or even in the two and a half or two and three quarter percent rates, you know, it makes a lot of sense that consumers are now able to finance the debt of their house, even if the overall equity of it may come down a little bit, they just have extremely lower monthly payments than they did pre-pandemic. And again, as another side note, a lot of the inflation that we see in the economy is as a result of consumers having excess disposable income, not only because of all the Fed money printing, but because of that unintended consequence of the mass refinancing of mortgages. The other big difference in mortgage financing today versus, you know, pre-financial crisis of 2008 is that the vast majority of mortgages not only have historically low mortgage rates, but they're also almost exclusively fixed interest rates. And again, that was a major reason why people became insolvent in 2008 was that they went in with tickler loans. And as soon as those rates come up to a market level, they could no longer afford their monthly payment. So it's a long way of saying that the financing around the real estate market is much more stable today than it was, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. So I think the probability of a 2008 real estate meltdown isn't what we're going to see going forward. I think it'll be more of a stagnant, price-depressed degradation decline until the Federal Reserve eventually does reverse their interest rate policy, which, you know, at some point they will because that'll be a new crisis. In any case, unfortunately for you, Tim, that slowdown in real estate sales has already occurred. So the optimum time for you to sell your house would have been, you know, 18 months ago. So either way, whether there turns out to be a real estate crash or not, I think your window of opportunity keeps closing and getting smaller every day. And then to the question of, you know, should you get a HELOC to repair your house to make the sales? What really worries me about your particular situation is that you're living in a house that needs repairs. So whether you sell your house and go rent and wait for the market to crash or, you know, whether you don't, I think what you really need to focus on is creating that the home that you live in and that you own is not decreasing in value. So like things like a leaky roof, you have to nip that in the bud. So my thought process would be just selling and unloading the house the way it is to get as much money as you can out of it or putting the money into fixing it at least so that it stops depreciating in value. Now, the problem with putting money into it to repair it may be that you're throwing good money after bad. And again, I don't know your particular situation. So I would recommend that you do some research and get a number of opinions. And number one, understand what the real market price is of your home if you just sold it now and walked away without any improvement. And then getting the estimates to understand what it would cost to fix it. But the real wild card there is you got to make sure that you're not putting more money into it than what it's ultimately going to sell for. So you need to do your homework, talk to some really good real estate professionals, as well as home improvement people, get a number of estimates, and do the math and see how it all works out. The other thing is, I don't know how handy you are, but if you can put sweat equity into making as many of those improvements yourself, well, that would really be a factor in turning the tables in your favor, because a lot of the repairs you're going to need are not going to be so much the material costs as much as the labor costs to get the repair work done. Well, hey, as always, thanks for the questions. This is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast. So it's unusual to disagree with somebody's conclusion but agree with their advice, and, and I do here. I, I'm telling you we are going to have a real estate market crash, that it's inevitable at this point, and there's no way that we escape having it. The, the value of the property has been artificially inflated by the low rates John talked about. The low rates did not really, in my opinion, give people much of a lower payment 
than prior for two reasons. One, those low rates during COVID weren't really that low compared to prior to COVID. My interest rate on my mortgage is almost 10 years old, and it's under 3%. So it's not like that was a, a narrow window to get into a rate like that, and a lot of people didn't sell. So he's right that there's a lot of people in fixed-rate mortgages at low rates. That's true. However, anybody that bought during the run-up paid more for the house than it was worth. And they still had a higher payment than had they bought a house two years earlier because the interest rates were about the same. The next thing is the uh, municipalities throughout the country have used this opportunity to reassess tax values. And a uh, house payment is a house payment, not a mortgage payment. So the tax cost of the housing has gone up dramatically at the same time. It has been somewhat mitigated by migration because people have moved from high-cost states like New York, New Jersey, Illinois to lower-cost states like Alabama, Texas, etc. However, that has dramatically increased the cost in markets like ours. On top of it, governments, I've said this for, for years now, have created an artificial shortage of starter housing and ending housing. What's starter and ending housing? Starter housing is new family, just got married, one kid on the way, three to 1,500 square foot or less. Ending housing, same house for an older couple. It's like, oh, geez, this uh, six-bedroom house is empty now. Why don't we sell it off to somebody in the middle of their life and buy a small house to live the rest of our life in? Those have been squeezed almost completely out of existence to where you used to be able to buy a 3-2 here, and I'm not talking that long ago. A, a typical 3-2 you know, production quality house, 10, 15 years old, 10 years ago here, 100 grand. Wasn't even hard. 100 grand. Today, over 200 grand. More than double the cost, and now we have an interest rate of 6 to 7% to go along with it. So there's a shortage of housing, and the only thing saving it right now is it's so bad, nobody wants to sell. Well, what's the other thing that's about to drop? Man, you're going to keep hearing there's, there's, there's more jobs than people, but the high-paying jobs are fixed and start getting slashed. This is coming. This is being forecast by the people that manipulate the economy. Over 100,000 jobs a month going. Google saying they're going to be doing layoffs. Facebook saying they're going to be doing layoffs. On top of this, you're about to see a financial crisis in Europe and the UK like you've never seen before. I, I put this on Twitter yesterday so that it's ironclad in print, but there will be bank runs, and it may not be what you think of when I say that in the U.K. and the E.U. by the end of this month. What I mean by that is you'll have rules on, you know, maybe it doesn't, everybody goes there and the bank shuts down, but there'll be rules on withdrawals, no more than this amount. There'll be, it'll be like Lebanon, but not quite that bad yet, where people are robbing the bank to get their own money out. That is going to happen this month. I'm like 85% on that one. And if it's not this month, it'll be next month. And all the alarm bells are going on. So what happens when Europe goes into a financial crisis? A lot of people in America go, nah, but the financial markets don't. Yellen came out a couple days ago, and she said, I have no concern about banks and finance and, and liquidity. The next day, she said, I have concerns that there's not enough liquidity. One day difference. So when jobs start getting lost, it doesn't matter that your interest rate is low. It matters that you can't afford the house anymore. And the Fed can do whatever it wants with interest rates at that point. It won't matter. And then the, the municipalities will be stupid and they'll want to hold on to the tax base. They will deny reassessment. People will not be able to afford their homes and they will bail. And they will bail out. And you're, it, it, I think it will be worse than 08 for totally different reasons. But all that said, John's assessment is correct. This is the danger of the next decade or more. And it could be 30 years, a 30-year-long decade. The United States is demographically entering exactly the scenario that Japan entered 30 years ago. We are. And that's a, it's a multi-decade sideways skid. The value of everything decreases, but the cost of everything remains high. It's an insane place to be. But if you look at it, the only hope we have... And I don't say this with a bunch of artificial pride, is we are the United States of America. We have resources that no other nation has. And it saved our ass many times. But I'm not sure that it can this time. The parasites are now consuming each other. Another thing that happened this week, 
the United Nations came out and publicly attacked the United States Federal Reserve and said that we're, ha we're about to go into a global recession. Read that for Europe and the UK depression, by the way. Full-on depression. Wish it was a recession. Because of the United States Federal Reserve money printing. Okay, you have two of the most parasitic entities in the world now want to fight with each other while the EU and the United States are fighting a proxy war with, the, with, the, with, with, with one of the three true nuclear superpowers in the world. Think about that <clears throat> as we get into my quote of the day. Um, I want to read two things to you today. One, again, the quote of the day by Thomas Mann, and then I, I found this quote actually a couple days ago, and I was getting ready for the Friday show. I was getting ready for, for the Friday show on Wednesday this week. I've been trying to get ahead. I've actually recorded this show on Thursday until I have Friday off with my family. I've been trying to do things like that lately. And uh, so I found this Wednesday. And again, the quote is, War is only a cowardly escape from the problems of peace, Thomas Mann. And I was like, wow, I, 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 I think that's a, a quote for the time, even though it was written uh, about the time of World War II as we were heading into World War II. Michael Saylor then, the next day, I'm sure he does not know what quotes I'm pulling off Brainy quote, posted this on Twitter. Inflation is caused by public policy intervention, parentheses, wars, close parentheses, enthusiastically declared to, quote, cure, end quote, all the perceived ailments of society. Without giving consideration to the ultimate cost and unintended consequences of these naive edicts, the inflation won't end until the wars end. Now you tell me there's not some synchronicity in that. Let me give you, you know, I'm going to let Michael's stuff speak for Michael. And I'm going to give you my interpretation of Thomas Mann's quote in our time and day. War is only a cowardly escape from the problems of peace. You see, in a time of true peace, where there's no enemy, there's no Cobra versus G.I. Joe, Right? And a, and a time and place where the government is left to its own. And the people of this government, of this state, say, you've been promising shit forever. Our life quality has gone down. The value of our money has gone down. The future of our children is less secure than our future was as children. Everything you've promised, you have failed to deliver. You're in the way or you're not doing enough. That will be the two sides in the dichotomy. One side will say, you need to get out of our way. The other side will say that you need to do more. But both sides, whether even though they hate each other, will agree the state has failed. And then the state, without somebody else to blame, without, we have to fight them over here so we don't have to fight them over there, and freedom isn't free, and whatever other bull, domino theory, and whatever label of bullshit that they've handed to you for all these decades, you remove it, And what do you get? A lack of excuse. You know, I know, I got an idea. We'll, just, we'll declare. We had, we had pretty much a peace period from the 70s to the 90s. We need some. Well, I'll declare war on drugs. Declare war on poverty, right? So they'll declare war on not just countries, but anything. Because it's a cowardly escape from the problems of peace. See, the problems of peace are with us always. The problems of peacetime are. How do we feed everybody? How do we not pollute our oceans? How do we give people the opportunity to build wealth? Not a guarantee that they will. How do we protect people's individual rights? How do we fulfill the basic social obligation to each other that we all have? No, Jack hasn't become a socialist, but I do believe we have a basic obligation to each other to at least leave each other alone. How do we create a world where we can leave each other alone without having people harm people just by being left alone? What if he does this? Whatever you can come up with. But there's all these problems. And the cowardly solution to the problem is for the people in power that never bleed, never sweat, never suffer under the horror of war to go to war with something, someone, anyone. See, it's not that the people that go fight the war are cowards. I mean, my God, how many people volunteer for the military in, in time of war and go, are those people cowards? 
You may not agree with their decision, but they're not cowardly. But none of those people decided that we should go to war. None of those people had the power to declare war or deploy troops without a declaration of war in complete opposition to our Constitution. None of those people had that choice. Who, who allows for and makes the opportunity for war? Well, it's not just government. The military-industrial complex and all their money and all their power and the peace that they are of the deep state, they create war. The lobbyists through the military-industrial complex, they create war. The congressmen and senators, they create war. The judicial branch that doesn't say, hey, what you're doing is unconstitutional, they enable war. They at least allow for war. And the executive branch that has the power to deploy troops and order attacks or ask the Congress to declare war, they're responsible for war. What do they all have in common? None of them go. None of them fight. And we have been so blessed and so secure in this nation for so long that none of them even risk having a bomb dropped upon their city. Could be a terrorist attack here or there. But, you know, you're not going to have bombers from the Afghanistan Taliban Air Force bombing New York City, like B-52s or something, right? No, we've got a great big ocean, got this amazing military. So easy. Ah, bomb those bastards. Ah, we hit a, a hospital or a wedding. Ah, collateral damage. Screw it. We have used war as an excuse to not fulfill the destiny that we should be fulfilling. Given all the blessings we have been given in this country, we have been using it as an excuse for over a century. This nation is the most warmongering modern nation that's ever existed. We, we have at this point dropped more bombs on people than Nazi Germany did in World War II. You take from World War II forward, number of bombs dropped on people. Nobody even comes close to the United States. Number of countries invaded, no one comes close to the United States. Number of years in which we've been involved in a conflict somewhere in the world, nobody touches the United States. Because war is a cowardly escape from the problems of peace. It's not that peace creates problems. It's that peace exposes our unwillingness to address problems. It gives government and industry an excuse for, well, we can't solve this problem right now. Let's say you had a stomach ache, just kind of a sick stomach, and you broke your arm and you were you're in danger of bleeding out, right? Legitimate emergency. And I'm putting a tourniquet on your arm, and you were telling me about your stomach ache, but we'll get you some Pepto-Bismol after we save your arm. You're like, oh, okay. That's war. But the arm's not really broken. We provoke wars, and we insert ourselves in conflicts between nations that we have no business inserting ourselves. I put something else interesting on Twitter today. And we'll see where it goes. It's open for three more days. It's a poll. You're welcome to go by my Twitter and vote on it. I'm not going to say where I'm going with this. I'm just going to tell you what the poll says and tell you what the results thus far are. Here's all it says. A country's president successfully bans opposition parties and also jails political opponents. Knowing that, which term best describes the kind of government this country has? Please pick the best answer and for more nuance, use the comments. Nobody's used the comments yet. The, the options are a democracy or a dictatorship. A country's president successfully bans opposition parties and also jails political opponents. Knowing that, which term best describes the kind of government this country has? Democracy has gotten 7.7%, and dictatorship has gotten 92.3%. We'll talk about this poll Monday and where I'm going with it. But I wish there was more participation in it. There's not that many votes on it yet. But 92% would say if a country's president can successfully ban opposition parties, you're looking at a dictatorship. It's interesting. It's interesting when we also say that war is the coward's way to avoid solving problems. That's another way to phrase today's quote. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I will be back on Monday with another one. And we will be talking about more about this, this poll of mine and a bunch of other stuff. 
I want to remind you, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can always do your online shopping, starting at tspaz.com. I also want to remind you that this is the last day to get all the early bird goodies if you back Paul Wheaton's Kickstarter for his Garden Master uh, video series. This is fantastic. I am so excited about it. There's a link in today's show notes. There's a link in the Daily Mail. Hopefully, even though I had the day off, I went ahead and put it back out on social media today. Uh, it is awesome. I do have an affiliate link through that, so I would appreciate it if you went through my affiliate link. You don't have to, though, if, if you can't find it or whatever, which all you got to do is look up episode 3183 and click the link in the show notes. But if you even just go to Kickstarter and look it up and do it, I don't care. It is awesome. I backed it myself for 400 bucks. That's how excited I am about it. Uh, I, I want to be, you know, there's certain higher level perks. You're actually named in the project, like as a producer or whatever. I want to be associated with this project. It's that awesome. But you can get a bunch of stuff for backing it for a dollar. And how good is this? It was fully funded in one hour. They broke an all-time record over at Wheaton Labs for funding a Kickstarter. One hour, fully funded. Uh, anyway, with that, I want to go ahead and wrap up. Uh, thanks for tuning in today. I'll catch you on Monday. You pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house. The American way a Dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Yeah.